in the Pacific Northwest, glaciers and winter snows on two huge dormant volcanoes have fed rivers across generations, a seasonal equilibrium that has nurtured long traditions. The borderlands at their feet, straddling Oregon and Washington, nurture farms and ranches, fruit growing and fishing. The powerful winds that blow up the Columbia River attract wind surfers from around the world. Climate change is making seasons less predictable and precipitation more variable, forcing families, businesses and Native American groups to reimagine the region's future and the tools that will be needed to manage it. That mental picture is from a story in the New York Times. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. That New York Times story was headed... Life built around snow, what happens when it vanishes? The story was the work of photojournalist Ruth Fremson and reporter Kirk Johnson. The subheading for the story says, The melting of the snowpack in the high Cascades has long been a predictable source of sustenance in the Pacific Northwest, but the old patterns are changing. The story begins, The sun set over the shoulder of Mount Adams at 8.38pm, and the temperature around the sacred stone circle fell quickly. People reach for jackets and blankets. Celebrating the mystery of summer solstice in this corner of southwest Washington, deep in the Cascades, means thinking about more than just darkness and light on the year's longest days. Land, sky and alpine air all seem bound together in the moment. Kirk Thomas, a druid priest, fixes his gaze towards the volcano's summit as the evening's colours deepen from rose to purple and the ceremony neared its conclusion. He offered up a blessing. May the snows always remain on the mountain, he said. Lives, businesses, communities and cultures were founded on the premise of deep snow in this part of Pacific Northwest. Meanwhile, a paper published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology on Science Direct helps us better understand climate anxiety. The paper entitled Climate Anxiety, Wellbeing and Pro-Environmental Action correlates of negative emotional responses to climate change in 32 countries. This study was explained, explored the correlates of climate anxiety in a diverse range of national contexts. The study shows that climate anxiety is positively related to rate of exposure of information about climate change impacts. The amount of attention people pay to climate change information. Climate anxiety, it adds, is also positively linked to pro-environmental behaviours and negatively linked to mental well-being. You'll find a link to that story in the show notes. Now we shift to the Washington Post, where readers hear that a Californian city's water supply is expected to run out in two months. The story begins. The residents of the sun-scorched city feel California's endless drought when dust lifts off the brown hills and flings grit into their living rooms. They see it when they drive past almond trees being ripped from the ground for lack of water and a new blinking sign at the corner of Elm and Cherry warning no watering front yard lawns. The fire chief knows that when he tested hydrants in August a rare occurrence in Koalinga desperately seeks to conserve water 
and the first one shot out of a foot-long black of compacted dirt. The second one ejected like a can of Axe body spray. The school superintendent could only think drought on the first day of school when a four-year-old fell onto unwatered turf, breaking an arm, or when the chainsaws chopped three coastal redwoods outside Henry F. Bishop's elementary that had withered and died. Superintendent Laurie Vellanuva even lost a portion of her own right lung last year from a drought-aggravated illness, valley fever. That's caused by breathing soil fungus whipped off the dry ground. And now we shift to an editorial from the New York Times, where it tells us, climate change is not negotiable. It begins. The American West has gone bone dry. The Great Salt Lake is vanishing. And water levels in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, the two great life-giving reservoirs in the Colorado River Basin, are declining with alarming speed. Wildfires are incinerating crops in France, Spain, Portugal and Italy while parts of Britain suffocated last week in temperatures exceeding 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Yet the news from Washington was all about the ability of a single United States Senator, Joe Manson, to destroy the centerpiece of President Joe Biden's plans to confront these very problems. Roughly $300 billion in tax credits and subsidies aimed at greatly expanding wind, solar, electric car batteries and other clean energy technologies over the next decade. Had it survived, this would have been the biggest single investment Washington ever made to combat the ravages of a warming climate. Back to the climate protest which focused on art, and in the New York Times we read, the guest essay is from an associate professor of human ecology at London University and the author of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire, Andreas Malm. He writes, Vincent van Gogh was not responsible for our climate breakdown. He was not the CEO of an oil or gas company or a coal merchant. In fact, van Gogh started drawing and painting while living amid the smoke and cinder in the Belgian coal district. Besides sunflowers, one of his most famous paintings is miners' wives carrying sacks of coal, their bodies bent under the weight of the bags. Art history knows few works that so powerfully capture the fossil economy's intolerable burden on living. So my initial reaction to the news that two activists from the group Just Stop Oil had tossed tomato soup on sunflowers at the National Gallery in London was, oh no, not another attack on some object with no casual relation to the real climate emergency. Something innocent and beautiful. As a rule, I tend to think sabotage is the most effective when it is precise and gritty. When activists from the same group smashed gas stations in April this year, they hit the nail on the head. Gasoline, unlike a Van Gogh painting, is a fuel of global warming. There is a whole planetary layer of stations, pipelines, platforms, derricks, terminals, mines and shafts that must be shut down to save humanity and other life forms. When governments refuse to undertake this work, it's up to the rest of us to initiate it. That is the rationale for sabotage, to aim straight for the bags of coal. And now we head to a story from Euronews. It's headlined, Climate Crisis, How Beetles and Fire Are Devouring European Forests. It says, the climate crisis has accelerated the dieback death of trees in forests in Germany. 
Extreme temperatures and droughty summers have resulted in a surge in bark beetle populations. Since 2018, Germany has lost half a million hectares of forest. In particular, spruce species have been particularly impacted. Here, in the Frankenwald Franconian Forest, we have large-scale forest dieback. It's a catastrophe. What was built up through generations was destroyed in just three years, explains Matthias Lindig, Forest and Bavarian State Forest Office Agent. Matthias's team fights the bark beetle, but already one quarter of the spruce forest in northeastern Bavaria is dead. Overlooking just one beetle spruce can lead to widespread infestation in a few weeks. 400 further trees can become infected and die. You'll find a link to that story in the show notes. And we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. And as I said before, until we talk again, please take care.